The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Support for this show comes from 1440 Multiversity, a state-of-the-art learning destination in the California Redwoods near Santa Cruz. 1440 Multiversity offers weekend and five-day programs in mindfulness, leadership, well-being, and more. Learn more at 1440.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Open to Desire, and Psychotherapy Without the Self. His newest work is The Trauma of Everyday Life. An interview with Dr. Epstein appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Mark Epstein, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm very excited about talking to you. I have been, a, I don't know if I say student or a follower of yours since 92 with the publication of Thoughts Without a Thinker. You are a major you know, contributor to the way I understand not just psychology, but Buddhism. You're also Jewish, and this is Passover week, and we don't normally date these interviews, but this is the middle of Passover. And I'm a rabbi who, who spent uh, years practicing Zen, so I have to ask you, just as a way of opening this, you know, what, sure. what, what drew you to Buddhism? Do you integrate Buddhism with your Judaism? Do you have any connection with Judaism? Uh, well, my connection with Judaism is pretty uh, fragile. Um, so I came to Buddhism. I, I grew up in a, uh, you know, in a in an academic family. I always say that academia was the religion that I that I was given at birth. So it was uh, kind of devoid of any kind of spiritual uh, context. So I think Buddhism came to me uh, freshly. And I was drawn to, you know, there was something about it, uh, talking about that, you know, the mind could uh, bring itself to some kind of peace that uh, drew me in right away. And I, I found it in college, and, and I took an introduction to world religion class in my freshman year in college, and the Buddhist stuff started to uh, work its way into me at that point. I think that's how a lot of it started. For me, it was in high school, but the same thing. It was an introduction to world religions. And when we got to the Buddhist section, it's like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. 
Yeah, so, it really did right away. And then, yeah. and then the deeper I, the deeper I uh, got into it, uh, it continued to make sense. So that, so that was very exciting for me. So one, one other question on this, uh, if you mm-hmm. have an opinion, um, why do you think so many Jews, I mean, my, my teachers and, and friends in Buddhism, I mean, Philip Kaplow was my first Zen teacher, uh, Bernie Glassman, Sharon Salzman, Jack Kornfield, Sylvia Bornstein, Lama Suridas, Gempo Roshi, Norm Fisher. I mean, these are all Jewish people who are practicing Buddhists. You think there's, is that an accident? That can't be an accident. What, what's your... <laughs> <laughs> it's probably an accident. Um, you know, there were, there were so many Jews who were psychoanalysts also. Like, what, what was that about? Um, uh, I, think, I think in some way, the, historically, the Jews were always moving between cultures, and they were always the translators. So I think, uh, you know, if, if you take a historical view, it probably makes sense that the, the, the Jews are a little bit on the fringe and they're looking to the new and they're trying to understand their own minds, you know. Um, but I think, you know, if you, even if you look at Buddhism in the West, there are equal, if not more, non-Jews who were also uh, instrumental in introducing Buddhism. So I think it's a little bit of a red herring, although, um, you you know, uh, it's a provocative question. I think, you know, the the other thing is that for many of us uh, uh, born Jewish in America, uh, the religious, the spiritual aspect of Judaism was not so apparent. The, you know, the cultural aspect was there, but there's a kind of void around the spiritual aspect. And, and Buddhism fits nicely. You know, there's no God you have to worry about, and it's all about uh, working with your own mind. And that dovetails nicely with psychoanalysis, which was already called the Jewish science, you know. So that's right. where my work comes in. Well, that, that makes sense to me. And, and the fact that you called it a red herring and, you know, herring and Jews go together. So that's, that's another, <laughs> that was, I'm sure that was a Freudian slip. on. And your red, red is communist. How, you know, how come I, so many Jews I, were right, communists also? That's right. I, I thought of that too. And I just was trying to stay yep. away from the communist angle, but stick with the herring, but I'll, I'll take it. And that's a good okay. way to start the conversation. So thanks for indulging me in that. But let's, so let's, let's move on to your, your new book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. It, it struck me, and we'll see if I'm on target with this, that what you did in this book, you were using the, the word trauma, it seemed to me, mm-hmm. right? that you're using the word yeah. trauma the way the Buddha used the word dukkha. Um, yeah. Is that is that fair? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about? Yeah, if, if there well, is a the, connection you know the, the word dukkha is usually translated as suffering. Uh, I, I always think about it more as unsatisfactoriness, but the actual word dukkha, if you take it apart, it means hard to face. So the Buddha was saying in his first noble truth that there's uh, something about life or aspects of life that that is hard to face. And then he talked about separation and loss and old age and illness and death and so on. So I was definitely superimposing trauma onto that concept of dukkha, uh, specifically because what I wanted, what I was moved by in starting the book was this uh, little, little talked about fact, if we can call it a fact, that the Buddha's mother was purported to have died when he was just a week old. 
And uh, no one had ever made anything of that uh, in my experience, but I started to wonder why was that part of the story and was there some kind of hidden psychological message there uh, that there was something hard to face about the Buddha's early life that relates to our uh, focus on early experience as determining the the kind of suffering or traumas that uh, we're all dealing with in an everyday way. So I had not heard that story before, but I had heard the story that the Buddha left his wife and son and went out exactly. to, to face life right after the baby was born. So do you see right a after, Exactly. So yes. So that's always a disturbing thing. Like, you know, when we hear the Buddha story and why did he leave the nice wife and how could he abandon the son and what kind of person is that? Uh, so when, but if you look at it as that actually he's replicating a kind of trauma that occurred to him when he was too young to actually be able to cognize, you know, or have thoughts about what the hell had happened to him, uh, there he is acting out or in our language enacting the same trauma that he was subjected to. Then there's a kind of psychobiography uh, aspect to the Buddhist story that starts to emerge that I think is relevant, you know, not just for what, what we call the big key traumas of, uh, you know, war and rape and uh, car accidents and so on, but also the, the little key traumas, the more everyday traumas of uh, um, children who don't have an optimal home environment to grow up in or never learn how to deal with their anger or their feelings of abandonment or whatever it might be. So I thought that story of the Buddha's mother, uh, you know, being ripped away when he was just a baby uh, is important in understanding uh, his, his whole journey. So how, well, first of all, now we know the title of your next book is Buddha on the Couch. No, that's an old that's an old rejected title. The title oh. of my next book is, is is Advice Not Given. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the right. subtitle is a uh, a guide to getting over yourself. Okay, which of course I have something I wanted to talk to you about was this whole notion of thoughts without a thinker. So, mm-hmm. getting over yourself when there's no self to get over. That that seems uh, well, to me very difficult. It's not that there's no self to get over. It's that the the, the self is not as uh, as real or concrete or fixed as we imagine it to be. So it's our, our fixed notions of self uh, are what we have to get over. There actually is a self or a soul. Uh, we we just don't know what the hell it is. So so is is the self or soul? I mean, my understanding was, I mean, you know, coming from a Zen thing, they always talk about no self and no mind and anatta and all yes. that. But, yes. but you're suggesting that it's it's what what uh, Sigmund Bauman might call the, the liquid self. It's it's fluid. It's it's um, you know it's it's emptying of it of its content. Well, there's a problem the with language. There's a pro- anytime you anytime you make a noun out of it, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so even when you say it's it's a fluid self, then you're still stuck with a sort of objectified version of what it is that you are. And the, I think what the Zen people are getting at, you know, with know this, know that, is that, uh, you know, um, our minds trick us always into objectifying something that that really is not an object. So we are not an object. And even when we talk about ourselves as a subject, you know, even calling ourselves a subject is making it an object. Right. So the, the Buddhist experience, the meditative experience of 
looking for the self that then when you really look for it, you can't find it. You know, all you find is a kind of transparent feeling, you know, that you know you're there, but can you put your finger on it? And that that's the kind of liberating insight that Buddhism brings. It's not that you're, you know, removed completely from who you always have been. It's that you actually connect more deeply to who or what you always have been. So you say in Thoughts Without a Thinker, that, and I'm just going to quote a sentence here, from the Buddhist perspective, meditation is indispensable to free the individual from neurotic misery. The notion of neurotic misery, and I want to come to meditation mm -hmm. in a second, I mean, that seems to be what you're talking about, is when you, when, when we take the self as a thing, when we make it, uh, I guess there's, you might say there's self-ing, but there's no self. Yep. Uh, yep. Is yep. is that yep. key to this this notion of two things of the neurotic misery, and then is that at the heart of things that are hard to face? Is that the hardest thing to face? Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May twenty fourth to twenty six at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That, that, that. Go ahead. But it's hard to quantify. Trying to quantify what the hardest thing to face is Fair is probably yeah, a fool's errand um, because, uh, you know, the things that are hard to face are, are shifting, endlessly shifting and always, always surprising us. And, you know, we think we've mastered uh, separation and then we have to deal with uh, old age or, you know, we think we've found love and then we have to deal with loss. And, you know, it's just like never ending. Um, so the idea of neurotic misery is that in neurosis, there's a kind of fixation or, or a kind of knot, uh, which is a language that is a word that the Buddhists sometimes use, a, a kind of knot or the, or Wilhelm Reich would say a kind of armoring that happens around, uh, um, experiences or feelings that we don't quite understand or that feel too unbearable. You know, the, the, the ego uh, is all about preserving its, um, uh, its uh, sense of control. So when things happen that feel unbearable, the ego uh, kind of unconsciously pushes that stuff away. It dissociates from the, the difficult feelings, and that creates a kind of neurotic knot. So in, in meditation, we learn how to make enough room in the mind to start to allow the, uh, the, the uh, unpleasant, unbearable kinds of feelings to start to reveal themselves again. And uh, gradually, 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 we, uh, we relax around that. And, and that uh, allows a, a kind of ease to come. 
And the ease allows you to feel whatever is coming up. Yeah, the, the ease allows you. Yeah, yeah. And that, in some way, that opens the heart back up because mm. the, the real thing, the real essential thing, you know, somewhere in that transparent self that's not as real as we think it is, is love. Uh, and for somehow, for some reason, that's scary to people, and they shy away from it. But uh, the the point I think has to be that we're basically developing our capacity to uh, to to love. And and do you still think that meditation is indispensable to that? Depends how you understand meditation, of course. So, so yeah, uh, you, give you us know, your take on people, it. Well, people objectify meditation and they turn meditation into something that they're straining at or striving for or get attached to in that sense of spiritual materialism. And then they're just like sitting and hurting their knees, you know, and or priding themselves on emptying their mind of thoughts when, you know, as soon as they stop meditating, they start thinking again. So what's the point of that? But but the um, the ability, whether you cultivate it in a sitting meditation or in psychotherapy or when jogging or when making art or listening to music, the ability to dispassionately observe the workings of your own mind and body, you know, uh, not getting uh, attached to what's pleasant and not pushing away what's unpleasant. That's meditation. Mm, okay, so that so. I do think is in, is indispensable. Some, some cultivation of the mind's ability to uh, observe itself is indispensable. So, yes. so do you encourage your, I mean, the people you work with to try something uh, in particular, or you just say, look, you can get it through jogging, swimming, gardening, as well as sitting. Well, the people I work with, I encourage to keep coming back for as long as they can, (laughs) as long as I find it useful, because that, you know, just uh, having to sit here with me is a kind of uh, meditation in that way. Uh, and then if they're, if they're interested, you know, if they want, if they want meditation, I can, uh, guide them in that direction or, but if they're not, not everyone, it's not for everyone. People have to find their own, their own way. So I try to, I try to get to know people well enough to, uh, to, uh, even though my next book is called advice, not given, uh, to, uh, feel free enough to uh, offer the advice that they don't have to take. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, sort of. I, I'm, I'm. You're looking at this from from many different perspectives, but certainly the perspective of a psychologist, a psychiatrist. Uh, what about you know Zen or Buddhism in the brain? You know, I'm thinking of uh, uh, James Austin's work, where you're sort of wiring the brain and then meditating and seeing what happens when people. Yeah. Are, are doing yeah. Zen practice. How does that yeah. impact your understanding? Um, not very much. For, uh, my personal understanding, it, it has not impacted it very much. You know, I came up um, uh, from the scientific background. I went to medical school. Uh, my early research was with uh, physiologists and neurobiologists who were into measuring what was happening in the brain and in the body in various forms of meditation. Uh, so I understand how that's been extremely useful in uh, propagating, uh, you know, in a materialist society where we think something's real if we can see it happening on a brain scan. I think that that's been very important for people to take meditation seriously. But um, but I always saw that as sort of peripheral and secondary. I took it seriously because I could feel it made a difference for me. And the difference it was making for me 
I don't think we were going to, I don't think I was going to be able to like point to a physiological or neurobiological measure and say, oh yeah, that's where it is. It's much more, in, you know, in my soul, so to speak. So, so, uh, um, so I sort of moved away, you, you know, I appreciate that that's a, uh, one of the things that's happening in the culture, and um, but it, it hasn't been my focus. So that's that's interesting. I think I mean you're sort of going I, I, what a more phenomenological approach to the. I mean you're yeah. looking at your experience as opposed to what what comes up on a brain scan. Uh, yeah. And and what's powerful about you saying that is that you have the training to know what's going on if you look at the brain scan. So yeah, I mean, our, even our understanding of the brain is still pretty primitive, even though we're making huge advances. So the the idea that that we could really know, uh, you know, the the um, intimate details and the the depth of what meditation is is about. Uh, you know, we don't really even understand depression and where, how that works in the brain or how the drugs work in the brain. You know, right. um, no one really understands that yet. We're just at the beginning. So that's wonderful work to do. It just isn't the work that I'm doing. Right. Well, we may be at the beginning of that understanding. We're coming near the end of this conversation, uh, which is <laughs> it goes very fast. Uh, so let's see if I can get a, at least one more more question in. Uh, sure. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, uh, back in 91, when uh, Tricycle Magazine um, first came out, there yeah. was this discussion in the magazine about the future of Buddhism in America. And I don't remember if it was um, who said it, but whoever said it, they said that the future would be as a psychology. And uh -huh. is that is that how you see it going? Is that it, it really is this psychological aspect or how? Yeah. What, yeah. What, what well, I think it's always been a psychology. I, you know, I think it was a psychology before we, before we had a word for psychology. That, that's why, uh, uh, that's why it's still alive and flourishing and relevant to us. Um, so I think now, now we have words for psychology and, you know, the unconscious and psychoanalysis and so on. So I think that that's one of the languages that Buddhism uh, is, has to be translated into for it to stay uh, uh, of interest to us. So I, so I do think that language is going to surround Buddhism more than maybe some of the ritual aspects that uh, were important in the, uh, in, the, in the Asian cultures. Right. Uh, but whether, that's, that. whether it's going to be more of a psychology than it ever was, I think probably not. Uh, but that, but, but um, uh, its psychological depth is very, is very uh, real. So in the 30 seconds we've got left, can, yeah. can you give uh, our listeners a sort of a sense? So what, what's one thing? I, I hate this kind of question, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's, <laughs> what, what's one thing I can do to more effectively uh, you know, face my, my traumas? Uh, um, well, I was, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I was lecturing about this in Oklahoma City. Uh, and uh, a guy came up to me, a therapist who worked at the local VA where there's a lot of trauma. And he said, you know, I never use the word, I never talk about Buddhism or use the word mindfulness when I'm dealing with my patients. I just tell them, go outside, shut the door and listen. And I thought, oh, that's a beautiful way of taking it into the everyday. 
you, you know, mm-hmm. like strip, really strip it of all the uh, of all the Buddhist stuff, and just make a little space in your life to uh, to listen in a listen in a new way to uh, the outside and the inside. So. Okay. You know, just take a walk. Take a yes. little walk. <laughs> Go you know, take a without walk. The head, without the headphones. Oh, no. Now that's too traumatic. <laughs> I, without, my, without my iPhone, I don't think I can do it. Oh, my God. That, that is without, it. Without your meditation app. Yeah, without my meditation app. This has been a, yes. a fabulous conversation, Mark. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Anytime. Well, thank you. My guest today was Mark Epstein. He's the author of The Trauma of Everyday Life. An interview with Dr. Epstein appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about his work at markepsteinmd.com. Support for today's podcast comes from 1440 Multiversity, a state-of-the-art learning destination in the California Redwoods near Santa Cruz, offering weekend and five-day programs in mindfulness, leadership, well-being, and more. Learn more at 1440.org. And a side note, I will be at 1440 Multiversity on August 18th through the 20th, leading a workshop on my book, The Sacred Art of Loving Kindness. I hope you can join me. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into the spiritualityandhealth.com website and subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.